A lot of times I'll be like, oh, what's the worst thing I could do to this? And then I can have the, like, I give myself the liberty of doing the worst thing. And then I have to like, kind of dig myself out of this hole I've made for myself. It's like pictorial hole. I mean, that's a great feeling to be like, I don't know where I am with this drawing. Let me make it worse for two days. Julian Kreimer has been called a painter's painter, but he says he's not sure how he feels about that description. He has been alternating between two kinds of working, abstraction and plein air painting, for most of his 15-year-plus practice. His perceptual paintings of construction sites, mostly done near his studio in Brooklyn, New York, cast a non-judgmental eye on the urban world around him. His recent project of abstract works on paper done in colored pencil are visually playful, colorful, and dense. Kreimer is fascinated by sociology, language, mark-making, and politics, and his work asks age-old questions about painting's relevance to these concerns. He is currently preparing for a solo show at Tiger Strikes Asteroid Gallery in Los Angeles this spring. I'm Clarity Haynes. For episode four of Magic Praxis, Kate Hawes and I visited Julian Kreimer in his Gowanus studio, looking at his paintings and drawings and discussing his process. Well, Julian, thanks for having us. Thank you for coming. I'm excited to have you here. Yeah, it's great to be here in your studio. It's really cool. It's fun to see all the different kinds of work on the walls and how they weirdly relate to each other. You've got abstract stuff right next to landscapes done plein air, right? Yep, yep. They're all kind of one day, one shot, plein air, perceptual painting. Have you been doing any of those lately? I do them in bursts. I used to do them more all throughout, and now... Because they require such a like special set of gear, and it tends to happen in chunks of like a few weeks or a month or two. So most of the summer I was painting plein air here and in Buenos Aires. Also, the time it takes, it's like you need an uninterrupted eight-hour chunk. In your paintings, it looks like you have both nature and you have the sort of urban cityscapes. How do you, like, grapple with the light changing over eight hours? Because it's so much about light. You, I almost break it down into two different things. It's like I have to break down where things physically are in space. So if I was blind and moving through space, mm-hmm. like, I could touch them. And then I have to do, like, this other thing that changes everything, which is the light. So it's like I build the scaffolding, and then the light is sort of, like, built onto the and scaffolding. And the light is a variable, but do you sort of make a decision to sort of freeze it some things you can really fudge so for example when it's like a wood scene it's pretty easy to fudge but the light dappling on the ground it doesn't matter where the little dots are as long as they're sort of credible but for a construction scene the eye of the viewer will know if i'm off the light becomes a real color issue so like in that painting it was an insane color question of like what does a shadow of concrete seen through an orange scrim look like relative to the scrim being made opaque. So figuring out like what red or purple or whatever would go next to the orange to be like a shadow seen through a scrim. And then what happens when the light hits the scrim such a way that makes it opaque. So a lot of it's like laying stuff out and then mixing a lot of the light color. And then just like in five minutes pounding in, almost like a stencil into the shapes I've cut out. And I think the one, the other one that's over there, like the construction paintings see, especially. Yeah, the scrim appears a lot. And then I also noticed on some of your previous work, the chain link fence. 
Yeah, the Which fence became. It doesn't really filter light, but it's also like you're looking through something to yeah. see something else. I mean, admittedly, Rackstraw Downs was like the first big fence guy. Okay. And Bob Berlind, who passed away, but you know, um, he also did a lot of like foreground stuff. And I think within the sort of landscapey tradition that I am deeply, you know, kind of into. Um, I think Rackstraw and Berlin were doing these like crazy fence things. I think so often we have this experience where we're looking and we purposely ignore so much to see what we're looking at. A ton of the brain's energy is actually going to not seeing things. And it's like, oh my God, I'm looking at this car that I'm interested in buying, but I'm looking at it through a fence at the used car lot and I'm ignoring the fence. If I was looking at, you know, I don't know, some kind of social urban architecture or something like the fence becomes primary. So I think in the paintings, it's like all that comes together at once. It's like with, I mean, this is going to sound like whatever. I don't know if this is appropriate, but the, it's like with, with like all the discussion with Black Lives Matter and white people suddenly being like, oh, I'm white? I was just a person a year ago. What do you mean I'm a white person? I think just being able to like see yourself is yeah. a super important step in being able to see more clearly. Right. A friend of mine she was saying that her brother is like, it, talking to him, it's like talking to somebody with a coconut on his head with two little holes drilled in. Cause it's just, he's got like, he's so in his way of perception. And so I was like, oh yeah, that's perfect. Like we all have some version of this coconut with little holes in it stuck on our head. And we can't, you know, we like see out of the coconut these tiny little pinholes. But I always like driving around Brooklyn and walking around Brooklyn and seeing all this new construction. I mean, I always think that like the building looks more beautiful with all of this gauze and scrim and whatnot and scaffolding yeah. around it like I've as a someone who's lived in New York for a long time like I've always been drawn to the building in a state of construction and I think for me the construction paintings was like realizing in a way that that thing that you're finding beautiful is like the distilled experience of living in New York yeah. It's like we see photos of like them building the subway in 1890 and like how weird would that be to have a farm on 58th Street right. or something and they're like digging this giant subway by your farm. And uh and so I feel like just I for me it was sort of like some weird art way to like wrap my spirit around like just the fact that there were everything was changing and just like how to kind of live with it rather than like right. It changes so rapidly in New York. It changes so rapidly in New York, and I can see the buildings from my studio, so it's like, I know that my studio is like in the firing line of gentrification. You know, I feel like we're, we're constantly both, we're the doers and the done, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. When you're painting, when you're standing there outside painting for eight hours, do you feel like all that stuff, like what you're talking about, like the issues of gentrification, is it good or is it bad? Is it this, is it that? Like, it seems to me that that would sort of be almost a non-issue as you're painting, or does it sort of come into the painting? I, it's like I started painting this way not because of all these other associations, but it's just like, I didn't know that there was a different way to make art. It was like, oh, art is like Van Gogh, and nobody, like, they all thought I was cute and I would stop making art after college. So they were like, oh, yeah, sure. Like, let him go out to the woods and paint. We'll critique it as if it's what art is supposed to be. And then he'll stop making art, you know, when he graduates and that'll be fine. And that'll, that'll have been an interesting experience. But I, like, stupidly kept doing it. And then I went, to, I went to study art in England for a year. 
And everybody was like, you know, making videos of dust in the corner. I mean, literally, like there was the Dutch woman making like the dust ball video or, you know, like we all had to do slideshows with slides back then in the 90s um, of our work. And I presented these plein air paintings of like suburban woods. And I literally was like choked up and crying because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing in connection to you guys. <laughs> Just because like, I liked what they were doing, but I was like, I had no idea how I was going to kind of like bridge that gap between contemporary art and plein air painting. So it became like kind of in a way, this giant struggle for many years to figure out like, how do these things that I'm interested in, like these bigger social issues, like how on earth do they get kind of shoehorned into this practice that's almost like, its own history, like doing yeah. karate or something, yeah. you know, or like sushi making. It's like you watch Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Right. And it is like connected to modern Japan and family structure and all stuff, but it's like the guy's just like putting fish on rice. I walk around with the, with the sketchbook and I think a lot about, it's funny, before the Trump debacle, I was doing these paintings in Midtown and that area is like a little bit caught in amber of the 1980s where there's all these condos. Trump is sort of like one of many of this sort of horrible smoked glass and brass yeah, yeah. look that now we look back at it and it's like, and there's certain architectural touches that are like, oh yeah, smoke, like it, it's just, it evokes like a whole 1980s kind of Reagan era vision yeah. of New York, but it's caught now. And so somehow I've sort of come around to realizing like the way I paint, I don't have to work at it to look like it's from now. Like I can just make the painting and it'll be a reflection of now. So then it's fun to go back and paint these like 80s buildings now, or like I'm painting the paintings of the future that are being built. So it'll be like what New York looks like in a year or two, but with a brushstroke of today. I did another painting that's back here of like a tennis club in the desert. And the tennis club is from the like sort of 60s. And I mean, it's hard to read because it's fairly abstracted. But you have this very different kind of land idea of the landscape where it's like, oh, let's make a, a sort of quasi-lush Mediterranean thing with swimming pools and grass and like totally non-native trees like cypresses and things in the middle of like what's a desert. Being in Southern California, that was really interesting because that was a landscape that I knew from TV. I used to watch like Falcon Crest and Knott's Landing. And I don't even know, but I assume that like whatever landscape they had was Southern California because that's where they filmed all that stuff. But for me, that was just like the landscape of rich people. Yeah. And so then actually being there, I was like, oh my God, San Diego is Falcon Crest. And so it was just like the generic TV landscape I knew as like the default landscape and actually realizing it had a contour and it had specific things. That's interesting because it's um, representational and really abstracted. So it seems like a bridge between your landscapes and your non-objective drawings. Yeah. And there, I mean, there are these two streams of the work that are like always in conversation. The nice thing about doing them in chunks is that I'll get really deeply into one of them and it'll start to create that filter in my brain. I had been doing a lot of abstraction and then I went to Yado and was suddenly in the woods. And that was where I also was like the sociological problem is really interesting in these residencies because a lot of them are in the woods. Yeah, so how does that So you can't make it hip. You, you can't make it woods. hip. Because you can't, I mean, you can look for trash in the woods. I don't woods. know, can't you? 
in a way, I was I was literally like wandering around with my little like wood box. <laughs> all your like, stuff. Yeah, all my stuff and like my backpack, my wood box, my hand, and I was like, what in the hell can I paint? You know, like in those Miyazaki movies where they turn the corner around the bend in the woods and there's like the sprites live there? So I was like wandering around looking for the sprites. So there was a lot of dead trees that I ended up painting. That year, there were like a lot of friends who died randomly in very sad ways. And so just the dead trees had such an, a tug with me. Yeah. And, and there was a lot of magic sprites in the air in that spot. But it was, but it was definitely like, in a way, that series of paintings, because it was the woods, I couldn't rely on the sociological subject matter to make the painting interesting. So it also kind of opened it up where I could be more abstract and try yeah. some of that. Like a lot of the technical things I was doing in my abstractions in the studio, like using giant brushes and, you know, I didn't have to have like the constraints of painting in the city, so I could paint bigger, I it could leave an like easel in the woods. like you're taking more liberties with color in the woods. Totally, I could take more liberties with color. When I look at people painting from observation landscapes, like so much of it is about like this weird relationship to like honesty, because it's not like you're being honest, because you're not, it's art. It's artifice, you know, like it's all made up, but you also are being honest. And so it's, it's a little bit like with the honesty of these building sites. It's like, oh, this is what New York looks like. New York looks like a big building site. Like we have these iconic flat iron buildings, but that's not what, New York doesn't look like the flat iron building. It looks like new condos on Fourth Avenue. I mean, it does, it looks like both, but where's the promotional tourist material of like, come visit the great building sites along Fourth Avenue, you know? Right here. There it is. Yeah, I mean, the ziggurat of the That painting um, that you have of, of this building with all kinds of gauze and meshing it and scaffolding and then the orange and white sort of fences in front of it. It is so strange looking. It looks like some futuristic structure. Like it doesn't even look like a building. But the way you painted it so quickly... It's very beautifully painted, you know, but it's not really making a judgment. I don't feel like it's saying this is good or bad. Rackstraw Downs' paintings are the same, you know. He'll have like a desert landscape with like a hill being bulldozed in the middle of it. And you can see like what mankind is doing to nature, but you're not feeling like there's any kind of moralistic message. Yeah. It just, it just is. Yeah, it just is. It's like this is... When we encounter like a Rackstraw Downs, you know, oil extraction site or these buildings, there's at least these two ways to have no judgment. And there's like a naive, like, I don't have any judgment. Like my daughter has no judgment on construction sites because she's seven. And then there's all this like, we, we know all this knowledge and we learn all this stuff and we feel strongly one way or the other. Like if I, if my pension was invested in that building turning a profit and I needed to have a retirement, I'd be like really excited that that thing do well, you know, consequences be damned. Um, even if I'm not like an evil capitalist, it's like that's the structure I live in. And then of course, as a, somebody with a studio in the neighborhood, I have like a stake in the game where I'm like, oh, this is gonna make it even harder for me to stay in my studio. But like, oh, it'll help the cheese shops and whatever. The, so there is this other, and I feel like Rackstraw, I mean, Lois Dodd is this way too, but just like where you come to a state of non-judgment you see all the different things that are at play and you're able to hold them all at once. That also doesn't mean like it, I have to blindly be like, oh, everything is good. So I feel like, yeah, a lot of it is about sort of like a grown up acceptance of how things are and what made them that way. And then with, and once you can see that, then you can actually have 
some agency in that. Right, and people can see what they see in your paintings. I mean, different people might have different reactions to Rackstra Downs paintings or to that painting of the building in progress. Um, you know, if your grandmother lost her, her brownstone, well, that, you know. That, that's what happened with this one. The building that I was painting by is like, you know, the neighborhood was working class Latino and Italian when I moved there 14 years, 12 years ago. Um, and now it's, you know, gentr like everything else, it's gentrifying. Um, and so this kid who was like, see Mexican-American, you know, he was like Mexican-American because he had no accent. But he comes out and he was like very kind of suspicious of me. And he was like, are you working for the real estate company? As if I was like a, making some decorative advertisement of like, look at these condos. And it was the first time that I, as the artist, had been so explicitly banded with the gentrifying occupiers. And so I was like, no way. Like, I, I mean, I, didn't, I couldn't be like, no way, don't blame me. Um, but I was like, no, I'm not. I'm just a painter. I paint, I'm just painting construction scenes around the city. He believed me and his tone changed. And he was like, oh, that's fine. When he came by, it was like still halfway done. So, you know, there was no, he wasn't making a judgment on the aesthetics of non-judgmental, you know, paint strokes. But he clearly, like, he was key, savvy to like how this all works. And so it was like, I could so easily see somebody co-opting, just like anything else, like the realtor could co-opt this and be like, oh, we want you to do a series of six paintings of the building going up. Yeah, and if the realtor asked you if you would do that, you'd have to make that decision of whether or not you would. I would have to make the decision, and, I, and I'm, I'm in a weird way, like I'm, I mean, maybe, maybe this is like a little cowardly where I'm happy I haven't been asked. Like morally or ethically, I'd have to make that decision, and that's something that like, I don't even know where I would fall on that spectrum. But, if there's something that salvages, like something about the fact that like Lois or Rackstraw like go out there in their little Subaru and like pull the stuff out of their trunk and paint it from life and are like there. Like there's something very, I think the fact that it is like on the ground is there's something to me that's very important about that. And it's a big factor of like kind of inserting myself in the world because it's like they're not engaged paintings. Like I'm not painting protests. Like I don't go to some march and paint people with signs. But the, but the fact that I'm inserting myself in the fabric of the real thing in this very physical way, it's important for me. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I suppose the viewer gets probably get, I mean, they probably, they're not, when I try to do them from photos, it doesn't work. And I think part of it is me being like, feeling tense and having to negotiate being in the social space and dealing with all this stuff. And to go back to your earlier question about the sociological, like, am I thinking about it when I paint? I totally am because I hadn't painted outside in public for a couple of years. And then I started painting outside the summer. And the change is that all of a sudden I became the subject of everyone's camp, not everyone, but like young white men between 15 to 35, I became the subject of all young white men's photographs for Instagram. They weren't like asking or even like visually making eye like contact. they're taking something from... They were of. totally... And it's like, I've been painting outside long enough that like, I've been a spectacle for so long. I guess I missed like the intervening year where everybody started doing this, but it was like people would really steal my image. And it was only this one sociological... It was like this only this one yeah, subset. Yeah, why do you think it was white, young white men? Well, it's like each group has like a certain reason to relate to the landscape painter as they do. So when I paint around here, like... I know at 2.40, if I'm painting, there's about a half hour of kids with parents or caretakers where I am like, I am part of the storybook. And that's fine because they're like, they're like, look at Mr. Kids Painter getting guy. getting out from school. Yeah. And because they want to present the world as a Richard Scarry book, it's like, 
do you mind if we look at you painting for a minute? And they do this whole, like, they're teaching their kids how to interact with the planner painter guy who doesn't exist anymore. You know, and then there's just, like, the nice, I don't know, like, the old lady getting dialysis down the street because there's, like, it turns out I'm painting by a dialysis center, little did I know, who's accompanied by her, like, younger relative, and they, like, nod at me, you know, politely and move on. And then, but then this weird, it was like a few days where I was painting on 4th Avenue and it was like a few blocks from the R train. And that was, it was like only white guys of that age. And it was like, I was like, I would see them walking the street and I could see them fumbling in their pocket as if they were like, you know, doing something surreptitious. And then they would whip out the phone when they, right when they passed me, turn around, snap the shot and then like double tail it away towards the subway and like do like the fast walk away. And it was this whole way of dealing with social space. What's that? There's like the assignment from the guy who teaches up at Columbia where it's like the rules of things you cannot photograph for photo one. It's like you cannot photograph Chinatown. You cannot photograph old people. You cannot photograph <laughs> homeless people. And I'm sure if there were enough of us, he'd be like, you do not you photograph the planner, planner painters. Painter. Yeah, we'd be like number 30 on the list. We're talking to Julian Kreimer in his Brooklyn studio. Magic Praxis is a podcast featuring studio art talks. To see images of some of the work we're discussing, you can visit our website at magicpraxis.com. So I went to London for art school for a year, like right after college, because I thought, like, I thought that was where people did landscape painting. Because I was like, yeah, I'm going to be part of the London school. So and when I, you got there, they were filming dust balls. They were filming dust balls. And I had brought my gear. <laughs> and I had no choice but, like, I'm going to continue on my painting outside. Because I was like, in a way, it was like, the like I had to double down. Like, it was so yeah, humiliating. Yeah. I had to, so I would, like, walk out to this pier on the Thames. And I was like, I'm going to paint this, like, 50-panel giant mural of the Thames until I have this giant wall covered with this huge thing, because like that's what you do in art school. It was totally, it was like, yeah, like I got deeper and deeper in the hole. And then literally when I got back to the US after that year in London, I moved to Queens. I just like hunkered in my apartment. I, I felt like I'd been so exposed. I was like, I now have to just paint in this little apartment for like a year just so like nobody can see me, because it was so embarrassing. In a weird way, like that back and forth is like what I've kind of been doing ever since. Like I go out for a while right. and that requires like this massive armor. To, it's almost like it would be easier if I could like pretend to be a worker with like, you know, little put up like little barricade around me and like I'm fixing a pipe down here in underground. But I have to like play, I have to perform the planner painter. Right. At the same time that you're trying to paint this thing that's changing super fast and the clouds are moving and your flies are getting caught in your wet paint and you're sweating and you want to pee and all this stuff is going on. The paintings look totally abstract about three quarters of the way through because it's just like you're, you're laying down structure and then things start to come together and they really only look good for the last like, I don't know, 15, 10, 15 minutes of like a four or five hour project. So everyone just, they're a little sad for me too, which I found is actually really disarming. You know, because there's so many, like, sad stories in New York. Yeah, yeah. And so they're like, oh, this poor guy with a dream that's not quite crushed yet. He's just out here doing it. Good but are you him. just projecting that? I, I think a little bit might be projection, but I think a lot of it is actually kind of accurate because I've done it so long and I've seen so many reactions that, like, I also know when in the painting it looks its worst. And that's when they really <laughs> are like, 
Do you feel like working outside is something you really enjoy because it is different from maybe being in a gallery where it's usually the same crowds and it's artists and the artist friends and you, you know you're really kind of seeing how art becomes more a part of everyday life or just people kind of reacting to it and many different reactions. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I like walking around a lot. I like, I mean, I guess I'm not like unique in this, but I think like that is one of my complaints about like the digital age is that it's, it's like, it's very easy not, even like if you, you know, when you go on the subway and people are watching movies on the subway. So like I'm watching a movie at home and then I go on the subway and I'm watching a movie on the subway and then I go to work and I'm like in front of a screen all day. Like I do crave the engagement with like a kind of the world in a very physical and, and social and, and emotional way. Um, I feel like the plein air paintings are like sort of a brisk run down 4th Avenue or, you know, like it's like you're out in the world, it's yeah. physical, like, and then when I'm looking at these abstract drawings, it's like so internal. Yes. Like, so what is that like to shift from one to the other? With the landscapes, because they like, also because they start and finish on the same day. I mean, now that I do yeah. series, like I'll do four. Do these last longer? Each oh, these one? last like, yeah, a hundred hours. Pretty labor intensive. It's a lot. Yeah, I mean, I bring my lunch and I like I don't leave the hallway and I don't have internet in here and I just like work on them. When I was in high school, like I used to run cross country and you knew that you'd have this very intense physical experience every day. And doing the landscapes is like that. It's like doing a sport where it's like super physical. Like I keep my brushes super clean because I know I gotta like get out there and get to work and deflect people. And then coming to the studio, it's like it, it it's it's almost like everything that that is. This is not. And I need that too. So it's like, I need to spend hours by the window drawing these tiny little marks or filling in every negative space. Like I'll doodle, you know, for half an hour, just like random marks and then spend like the next three days filling in all the spaces left behind, like picking up the shit from when I had like my doodle tantrum. With the landscapes, everything has to be like kind of towards the goal of getting this image. Whereas with the, drawings a lot of times I'll be like oh what's the worst thing I could do to this and then I can have the like I give myself the liberty of doing the worst thing and then I have to like kind of dig myself out of this hole I've made for myself it's like pictorial hole I mean that's a great feeling to be like I don't know where I am with this drawing let me make it worse for two days just like make it worse and worse and worse and then have something to mess around with that, I love that. That's like it's it's probably harder with the drawings to like dig yourself out of that hole than it is with some of these oil paintings I see. Are they oil? Yeah, everything's um, oil. They are uh, abstract, but with paint, you just slap on another layer, no big deal. But these are colored pencil. Yeah, although I can paper. erase it. I use Abaca paper. You can just erase the hell out of it and then draw super hard on it. And the mental space, like all those things you're asking about, like do I think about sociology and whatever? In a way that landscape painting forces me to like let those thoughts pass. Mm -hmm. And in these, I can really like chew on those thoughts. In a weird way, it's like the fertilizing. It's like as things decay in the forest, they're also growing. So I feel like the drawings are like where all that kind of microbiotic stuff is happening. Didn't yeah. you tell me that these drawings came out of an assignment given to you by your therapist? They did, yeah. 10, I started seeing a therapist and she was like, you're a terrible patient. You're not saying anything interesting at all. <laughs> you're just spinning in your intellect and um, this is going nowhere. So she was like, why don't you do the Pollock thing and draw your dream emotions? 
So I was like, okay, so I, I, I was keeping a dream journal at that point, and I was having super vivid dreams because we were going into like really, I don't know, it was that part of therapy where you're like in the swamp and you're like, the therapy seems like nothing happened. And then you go home and you have like a panic dream where you're like, branches are smashing through the windows and like tangling you and you're like in your parents' bed as a three-year-old and you don't have language and you're screaming and they're ah. like, the branches are like, you know, strangling you. And you're it's called like, a nightmare. Yes. Or like suddenly I was in, you know, like the front yard of the house where I grew up and it was like the Indian, that, that holiday holy where they throw the colors around. So I was like, it was holy and the front yard of my garden, the garden was full of Indian people throwing color at me and each other. And it was like both amazing and terrifying. And I was hiding in the little maple, the three foot tall Japanese maple tree. Um, But so I was like, oh my God, I got to draw that. Uh, And so I started drawing them as a therapist assignment and brought them to her. And that we got over that assignment in a few weeks, but I kind of got hooked on the drawing just dealing with like stress of you know, teaching and whatever life, um, these became this place that I could like hide out in this world and just float around in these pages. It was like I was wrestling with each drawing. Like it was a kind of crazy dance wrestle where I get into it without any engagement. Like just start with it a random way. Like, oh, I'm listening to a song. Let me write down the lyrics with my left hand in crazy loopy language. And then let me like, I wrote down a bunch of like just whatever lyrics I was hearing from like these tango records. And then I was like, let me wrap colors around every, so I'll wrap like blue around every letter on the page. And then I'll wrap pink around every letter in the page and so on and so forth until the colors start to bounce. And then I have this pattern that then I'm like, well, let me draw liquid fire on that. So that became like, you know, several days of drawing this like very gently gradated liquid fire. And then it sort of stalled for like six months, this drawing. And then, let me destroy it a little bit by like throwing scaffolding of color through it. And then let me put clouds of fence, <laughs> the old yeah, chain link fence. I know, yeah. but I was like, oh, I have to, yeah, actually yeah. was very conscious because I was like, oh, I can't, I don't want it to be like chain link fence. I want it to be. I don't see chain link fence, no, but thank just God. the idea that you can see through something else Yeah. to see something else. Yeah, I mean, I've been painting outside for years and years, like decades. So it's like, I mean, at this point, it's like literally yeah, yeah. 22 years of doing it pretty seriously. So, um, so yeah, that like that way of seeing has become such a thing. Like it, there'll be a, a ton of negative space that then just gets filled in with like a sky, whether it's like a sunset, you know, tequila sunrise sky or like a gentle sky night thing. I think when you paint observation, like the horizon is such a huge deal and the sky is such a big that even like a little bit goes a long way. So I'm very, very conscious of like how you can punch through a space to create like a tiny bit of sky just to orient yourself up and down. I mean, it is looking through, it's the same formal dynamics, but it's more like a temporal thing. Like here's this experience, and then here's this other experience, and here's the thing I did the following week when I went somewhere and gave a talk or went to visit you know, my mother. And they each have a different like flavor and emote. And, 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 and the thing that I think was, has carried through with it with the therapist was the idea that there's like this kind of emotional valence to the color. Like it's the same thing that makes you a good patient is what like makes you a good artist. It's like, oh, you can actually get to the to the to the weird stuff. You can let yourself be taken and be led by its weird logic. So it doesn't seem weird at all, but it makes like perfect emotional sense. And it's so kind I of think like something beyond language, you know, dreams are sort of a portal to another part of your consciousness that these don't seem like 
words at all. As a kid, we would speak like, you know, my parents are Argentine, so it was like we would speak Spanish at home. And like a whole, I would have like a whole emotional palette based on Spanish. And I had like a totally different emotional palette based on English, because English was like the language of non-family. So there was like this very clear divide of like Spanish as a language of family emotions and English as the, like the language of say, like all my crushes were on people in English. So there was like, because it was like, I wasn't, I wasn't like a track, you know, obviously like there's like this very clear family, you know, incest rule in, in human culture. So I was like, and I remember, actually I remember having a crush in Spanish when I was like, with a fellow volunteer at this daycare when I was in high school. And like, it was totally, like I had no idea how to proceed with it. Not that I was like particularly knew how to proceed with it in English either, but, um, but it, was, it was like a totally weird, like it threw me for a loop. I guess language is so, to me is like very much this one layer among so many different ways of experiencing and understanding the world. And it's, it's funny because it is like a little bit like what we were talking about with the landscape stuff of just like, you know, you're, I'm thinking about the sociology and I'm also thinking about Lois Dodd and the brushstroke and like the light. And then people are coming up to me and thinking about me, like their Instagram food for the day or their kids lesson for the day or whatever it is. Like, you know, I am this thing to them that I am not to me. And, you know, who we are from the outside and the inside and like that all colliding in the space of like this very thin work. You were talking about how your family is from Argentina, and like even though you grew up in D.C., you've had this deep knowledge of another country, another tradition, has its own political history, its own artistic history. And I'm curious if there's any way in which you feel like that plays into your perspective with your work. I don't think about it that much anymore, but for a long time it was like definitely like, oh, what would have happened had my parents not gotten these grants to come to grad school here? And then stay, you know, and decided to right. stay. Like it could easily have gone back. And like right when they finished grad school, like the dictatorship was starting up there. So they were like, well, this isn't good. So it, I could easily have grown up. I mean, even if you're like family, like your mom was from Virginia and your dad is from Vermont. Like I think anybody who has like some movement in the family, like we all have like these layers in us. I don't know. It's a very weird thing of just these little shifts that create, you know, that change. Everything. As you're saying that, standing next to your painting, it's almost like you're describing one of your paintings. There you go. Layers and little shifts. Yeah. And they're packed full of information, and, and there's so many different things going on in, in one space. Yeah. So thanks, Julian. It's been really great to talk to you. Thanks for having us here. It's been amazing to have you guys. This was great. This episode of Magic Praxis was mixed by John Bender, who also does our music. Sign up for future episodes on iTunes or at magicpraxis.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.